0: Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to for Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle, uh, still uh, coming to you in um, magnificent quasi-stereo. i uh, love to be able to turn on the quad switch. Uh, it doesn't look like there's much I can do about the channel imbalance. It was such a big issue last time. Uh, it seems like it might be marginally better, but basically we're recording this thing mono, and I usually just duplicate the tracks. No sound, you're saying. Somebody said sound, Bill. Are we hearing sound? Oh, okay. Five by five. Good to know. Um, that's like making a perfect takeoff and having the tower say, uh, check your landing gear. Do you want to return to base? Uh, so anyway, here we are. Um, now I just realized uh, that the first version, the first shows that we did for stratosphere lounge kind of low, I can do something about the low, not much, but a little bit. Hang on. Uh, That's a little more juicier. I don't want to blow it out. Um, Okay. I can't do the balance. Balance is, that, that's a dead issue. Anybody who talks about balance from now on, we'll have to do 50 push, push-ups. Um, so, um, I realized that the first Stress Free Lounge shows were done in a different background. They were done in, the, um, in my previous editing studio. I don't know if we started in 2013 or twelve, uh, Maybe more. I'll give it a little more juice. Because I am all about making people happy. But I don't want to give it too much more. That's about all. That's, that's it. She's got about that. We moved into this studio back in 2014. So 2012, says Dave Big Booty, who ought to know. So um, so the show's 11 years old. And when you get something that's uh, that old, you develop your own traditions and your own sort of, you know, traditions. And one of the traditions is for me to start every single show that we I close every show we do by thanking the members of BillWiddle.com. And I open every show we do explaining why I've got to do a short show this week. It's it's tradition. It's just something that has to be there. It's like it's like it's like doing a pitch meeting without the um, actually it'd be super easy. Barely inconvenient. Oh, really? Uh, this time, it might actually have a little more bearing only because um, the only times I've actually threatened to do a short show and had to do them was when I, I was taking my cat to the vet on Thursdays, which. Actually, might happen next Thursday. Uh, but this time is a little bit different because there's an external player here. So uh, here's here's what's going on. Um, we have released, I think we released episode nine of the Cold War. I did notes for 10 when I was on the road. Um, I did notes for 11 last night. Uh, I'm going to ex- tell you that, guys this not to... Um, not to... Uh, Inferred or, or um, denigrate anybody involved with the process. This is extremely technical stuff. But on episode 11, when I got it back, um, I had I had replied with uh, the first eight episodes, I probably had 15, 20, 30 notes. That's normal for, for something going from the guy who actually wrote the stuff with the technical knowledge. We got to episode nine, which was my favorite Cloak and Daggers, and um, in that episode, I had 253 notes. And not only were those 253 things that had to be changed I had to go find what they had to be changed to so 253 times on that episode I had to say no this is uh, give you an example from episode 11 that I finished last night I spent the whole the whole episode talking first half of the episode talking about operation bolo and uh, you know Air Force um, Air Force's greatest moment and 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 Robin olds and all the rest of it and then there's a line, and every one of the planes made it home, and the editor puts up a shot of, a, of an F-4 landing on an aircraft carrier. And I would just start to run out of, you know, elasticity on these things. Actually, if you listen to the script so far, this is an Air Force operation. This is a Navy jet. I'm typing this in the This is a Navy jet. The um, It's the presence of the aircraft carrier, the ocean, and the giant letters that say Navy on the back is what gives it away. Um, so... We've got. Oh, thank you. Um, a. I, I hate when people mumble names. If I ever give a name in the, and somebody says, Abakmoni, Abicmon, Mo, Moni," says, "I'm on two TVs in this house." Anyway, um, so 253 notes, and I thought, "Oh, this is going to be a catastrophe." This this. Uh, it's my favorite episode. I said, "I'd like to see the second cut on this one." They sent me the second cut, and it blew me away. Not only had they fixed everything, but they'd found stuff that I didn't even know existed. So um, I thought that it was great. Uh, so here's the thing. Um, I thought I'd have episode 11 notes done by Monday night. I just finished them last night, Wednesday night as we record this. We 215 notes on that one. I've got 12 now. And, uh, and 13 is, is done. And it looks like it's going to be a little easier. But my point is... These guys are getting pretty close to their release dates, so I'm going to um, try to do an hour show if I can, hour 15, something like that. And then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to um, get right on the notes for the last of these Cold War series. We put an awful lot of work into these things. We put a lot of work in them when we did them again on camera, and I would hate to have the, the, the quality that we've been able to maintain um, you know, fall off just because we were playing red out of time because this stuff was, you know, so complicated. Now, to be fair, it's hard to expect somebody, um, you know, especially somebody who's a just a TV editor, or I was one for sixteen years. But to be fair, you know, if you're talking about uh, Operation Bolo, it's hard for them to understand that if it's between a F-105 maybe and an F four, and it's especially tough if you say this is an F one oh five early model and it's silver, it should be in camouflage. So I get all of that. That's to be fair. But uh, one of those examples was, um, I mentioned in episode nine, I mentioned that one of the, um, that there was an explosion in the rear compartment of K-129, but battery probably exploded with a force of maybe five pounds of TNT, not tons, five pounds of TNT. And the editor to cover that shot, I'm not making this up, put up the Bikini Atoll H-bomb test because it was an underwater explosion, you know? And and I'd written something exploded underwater, and. And and I, I basically said, you know, there comes a point when you have to, you just have to listen to, you know, what we're saying. So anyway, I'm not trying to uh, denigrate the guys who did this. They, they're, um, they're determined to get it right. I'm determined to get it right. Everything we've sent out the door, I've been very very happy with. So. Um, I've got a little bit of stuff that I have to do between now and I should be clear of this by next Thursday, but I do have to get on that. So having wasted virtually all the time I have available, it's nice to see you. Have a great evening. and We'll talk to you soon. Um, Okay. So uh, I saw in the comment section as we were rolling, a lot of discussion about Donald Trump's uh, town hall meeting and so on, and discussion about uh, obviously Trump running and and where he stands and all the rest of it. Um, And... Uh, I did not see the town hall meeting uh, and I still think it's a little early to see but the, you know the the basically the discussion the political discussion that was going on here when I came in was uh, you know is it I don't see anybody who can stop Trump from being the Republican nominee I could see a lot of people set the house on fire um, I think uh, what I what I'd read in the comments just earlier I mean just minutes before we rolled tonight actually made me feel considerably better because pretty much everything I'd seen of Trump from the night of the 22nd of 2020, which is enough to kill anybody, frankly. People who lose a presidential election generally go nuts and people have it stolen from them have a right to go around the bend. But since that night, I haven't seen him in what I consider to be top form. However, everybody um, said that, uh, that his performance on CNN was disciplined that's the word I'm actually looking for. Disciplined. Um, And so uh, that's a word that that would be really useful uh, to to Donald Trump. I don't know if he's quite the um, dynamo that he was in uh, 2016, but then of course, Joe Biden's not the dynamo that he was back in 2020 either. Uh, I don't know. We're going to see um, but I'll tell you one thing just on this one topic, and I think I'll probably go right to questions. because You don't really have much else to say tonight uh, in the beginning. Um, what I will say is if Donald Trump had been running, if Donald Trump had been in the presidential debates with Barack Obama in 2012 and Candy Crowley had tried the stuff that she pulled off on Mitt Romney, for those of you who remember uh, recent history, Romney had Obama on the ropes, had him into a stuttering, you know, uh, Charlie Foxtrot, He was just uh, 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 let's let's move on. No, no, and he's pressing, and then Candy Crowley in, inserts her considerable bulk into the argument, and basically dings the bell early, and Obama gets you know he doesn't he's not you know say he's saved by the bell literally. She just comes along and says you know he did say this. So let's just move on. Donald Trump won't stand for that, and that's where the fight the fight is won and lost. Actually, um, it's actually one of the things that has just consistently amazed me—and not in a good way—it amazes me like the same way I'm amazed when I watch a, you know, um, like a, like a, a runaway train or something that I can't control and no one can stop. We just know it's going to end badly. Is that we walk into these presidential debates and we know they're hosted by Democratic Party operatives and we still go because that's apparently the game. That's how it's rigged, you know. And it's like you just let them let them run over you. And Trump is at his best when he's when he's fighting the press. Now, if I was Trump, here's what I would do. I would stay right on this topic. I'd stay on the topic of the media. I'd stay on the topic of elites controlling the information. And if Donald Trump were really clever, instead of talking about how, how the times that this has happened to him or happened to conservatives or happened to Republicans, if I was Trump's advisor, I would say, um, Mr. President, we need to find famous cases where the media lied about things that, that independent voters can relate to. Um, That's, I don't know if it was Peter Benchley or somebody like that wrote that, um, that you read the news and you assume everything is true. And then there's a story about something you know something about. And then you realize they got everything wrong here. These guys are absolutely wrong about everything. And then you go on to the next story and you assume that they've got it all right again. And that's true for everybody. Everybody who knows what they're talking about, sees a, a news story, they got that wrong, that wrong, that wrong, that wrong. They get, get all of it wrong. So um, he uh, he really needs to be making this a worldwide case. He needs, he, he needs to make a case about um, about these people are controlling your information they're controlling what you see and don't see. So much of your opinion about Republicans and, and so on, and me is selective editing all the rest. I would just go hard at that. And they're reading your mail. If I was going to run his campaign, that's what I would do. They're reading your mail. They're showing you the things they want you to see. They're not showing you the things they don't want you to see. They're controlling all of your behaviors by controlling your choices. And there's only one person running in this election, and frankly, in the last several elections, who's enough outside the system to put an end to all of this if I get reelected. And that is me. I will dismantle big tech. I will not ban them. I'll not destroy them. I'll take them into little pieces and set them against each other so there's real competition and we can have an honest uh, flow of information. Um, that's what I would do uh, when I said reelected. Yes, I, uh, Donald, I think Donald Trump, I don't know if he wins in 2024, he'll be the first guy since Roosevelt to win three consecutive presidential elections. Um, so, um, I would make it all about stuff that is, I would not go on the cross about how he has been defamed or how conservatives have been defamed. I would go directly to the entire country is being defamed. And you only know about it when the story's about you, when the story's about you, if you're a farmer, you hear a farm story, that's nonsense. You just assume the rest of it is true. If you're an airline pilot, there's a story about this. That's nonsense, and you assume the story about the farm is true. All of that, I would just go back to that again and again and again. I would just stay on it, and um, and I would uh, I wouldn't give it up. I would I would make myself um, a champion of all the people against, and I wouldn't say even against the government. If I if I'm smart, if I if I was advising Trump, I would say I wouldn't make it about the government or the U.S. government. The Democrats love the government, and if you attack the US government, even moderates will find that to be unpatriotic. I would make it about international elitism. I would make it all about that. I wouldn't go into weird conspiracy theories. I would just say the people that are running our government are in line with the people that are running the European Union. They're in line with the people that are running the Communist Party of China. They're, they're aligned with all of these elitists in the United Nations and in the World Economic Forum. They've decided what's better for you and they want you to eat bugs, and and they want you to not drive cars, and they want you to to give up your air conditioning, and they want you to live like slaves. Because they like the idea of being slave masters, and somebody's got to stop them. And the person's going to stop them is you. I'm just the weapon. You're the you're the you. Your individual choice is what's going to determine whether we live as a free country or not. Something along those lines. Um, I would really. Uh, I would really go down that road. Um, anyway, I think probably uh, we we'll just go ahead and do some questions because I do have some, uh, you know, slight show business news, but it's, this is the political show. However, since there is some bleed through on these inks, um, I got an email from Doomcock, who I haven't heard from in a while, because I, mostly because I've been busy. Said, "Hey, how you been doing? I'm be all right. Missed you. You know, it's good talking to you. Love to do something again." I sent him back a reply saying, hey, I'm just wrapping something up. And I sent him the Gorn Captain because he sounds quite a bit like Doomcock. He loved it. And I said, do you know anything about Major Matt Mason? What a silly question. I knew that was a silly question. I, I thought it was even maybe an insulting question. But I wanted to be sure. Save me some exposition time. And he wrote me back today and said, yeah, I've got a bunch of them in my collection. I was playing with some of the, uh, the, the Moonsleds earlier today. I said, my kind of guy. So I'll tell them all about the other stuff that we've got to get moving. Oh, and one other piece of show business news. Um, we're having a conversation tomorrow with an author on uh, the definitive book about Frank Luke uh, to talk with him about whether or not we can, you know, uh, option the rights and family blessing and stuff to the screenplay. And he's a big fan of Daily Wire. And, um, and that goes a long way. He would be though, because he's not a Hollywood guy. He's an aviation guy, and most aviation guys and most engineers are conservatives. Because unlike in science, in engineering, if you make a mistake, people die, and same for airplanes too. So uh, that's good news. We'll find out tomorrow and I'll, on Monday night. I might have some some real good news. So if um, we can if we can pull that off, then we can move on that quickly, and we'll see whatever is there. Um, so I get to tell them tomorrow about what I like about the story, and and uh, I'm looking forward to that. So we'll see. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's go to the uh, to the members only vault and see. <laughs> let's run up to the lab and see what's on the slab because I see you quiver with anticipation. Patient. All right, here we go. I'm just going to knock them down in order. Uh, from Ian Nolan. Here we go. Privateer, uh, Bill, here's a thought out of the blue. Those are the best kind of my experience. Privateers managed to wage economic warfare that was actually less bloody than other forms of warfare. The profit motive in privateering is to, for those of you not familiar, privateer is essentially a legally sanctioned pirate. Uh, it's not a Navy ship. It's not a representative of the government. It's a guy has got a license to. Hunt down pirates, basically. The profit motive in, in privateering is to seize cargo and citizens and press for ransom. The Great Nations signed treaties banning privateering because it was too effective. They didn't like being pressed from within their own economies and citizens applying political pressure. Should we back out of that treaty as a way to defang some kind of mili- of the military-industrial complex? Ian, you always have such deep and important questions. Um, I don't know enough. I haven't thought enough about it to... Um, Answer whether we should back out of that treaty. I'm inclined to say that when um, when there's anarchy in the world's oceans, as there were in the was in the Caribbean in the 16, 1700s, and and around the world and so on, as the world's dominant naval power and uh, continue to be by a wide margin, despite efforts on both sides of uh, that um, dividing line to uh, weaken it. I think seems things seem to be working pretty well for us out there on the high seas, but but, 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 but. And that's a big but. Speaking of Kenny Crowley, uh, the um, but, your point about privateering and, and, it, and it being um, efficient actually got me thinking and got me thinking about could the privateering model be applied to anything else in our society? I haven't given this any thought but once you said privateering you mentioned how effective it was because it certainly was i'm not so much interested because i don't think piracy is a big issue and like i say control of the seas i'm pretty comfortable with right now there's a lot of things i'm not comfortable with and and i haven't given this a speck of thought but you got me started on something that i will give some thought to and that is can the privateer model be used somehow Uh, it doesn't have to be the, the government sanctions you model. In fact, I'm looking for something kind of the opposite of that. But, you know, on some level, on some level, it's a weird sort of connection. On the um, I think on the last uh, Stratosphere Studio show, I was talking about how um, these corporations named Disney that are anti-Walt Disney have ruined all of these projects. And I said... I think it's time to take their power away there should be a council of namia or whatever and, and have just leading you know online uh impl- i hate the word influencers leading online content providers uh get together and then decide what's canon and what's not take it back from the corporations and give it back to the fans that way if the if the corporations make something garbage the fans can say all right so it's another piece of garbage fan fiction doesn't pass the uh the doomcock test or the or the nerdrotic test or whatever test you want to say so therefore, um, make good stuff, and, and you'll have our backing. If you don't, then we're just going to consider it to be cool. Now, um, uh, by doing that, that that strikes me as kind of a model of, of privateering in a way. I don't know if it's like a direct correlation, but it strikes me as kind of an end run around... Um, What what the reason it reminded me of this privateering idea is because it is a way to get non-official legitimacy, right? The legitimacy would come from the fans, not come from the studios. And so, if you were to do that, you would sort of, in a way, you wouldn't be pirating content; you would be privateering it. You would be um, you would be compensating it on on behalf of the fans. And return it to its rightful owners that kind of thing now you can get away with a lot of evil doing that kind of um kind of mental gymnastics but something along those lines on a much larger scale is interesting because what the privateer model did was it provided legal protection for you to go out and hunt down criminals not only not only legal protection but legal incentive you got to keep a significant amount of stuff that they um that they had stolen so pirates steal something. They um, overtake a ship and murder everybody or not, take all the loot off of it, hold people for ransom, that's stealing. And then they would send independent people out there because the Navy wasn't big enough to do the job. The Royal Navy or the American Navy or any of these navies, the French, Spanish Navy, the pirates were everywhere. It was like flea infestation. So then they would find guys, many of whom were former pirates, and they would basically say, if you kill only pirates, you can kill as many as you want to, and we're not going to hang you for it. In fact, we'll let you keep a percentage, significant percentage of whatever you're able to recoup from the pirates. So if the pirates steal $100 or 100 doubloons, let's say, and a privateer tracks down the pirate and then gets uh, gets 100 doubloons back, then the privateer can keep 20 doubloons or whatever the number, even if he takes 50. The original owners at least get 50 back. They don't lose all of it. Yes, that's exactly right. Eric Blake says it's equivalent to a bounty hunter. Called um, called a letter of Mark as a... Uh, uh, as Destry points out in, the, um, in our uh, YouTube chat. So the problem is, is that the target now is, is the legal. The privateers need to be turned against the people that are writing the laws. It's one thing to turn privateers against pirates and have the official sanction of the state behind you, That's what a bounty hunter is. That's what a posse is. That's what a, that's what a, yeah, yeah, bounty hunter, right? Wanted dead or alive. We've identified this man as a criminal. And as long as you bring us this guy and not some other guy, we'll get not only not hold you responsible for killing him, we'll give you a reward. So the, so the people who are, who are creating these so-called letters of Mark for either privateers or, or putting out the posters, wanted dead or alive. Those are the people that determine what's legal and what's not. And our problem is those are the people that we need to go after we need to go after the government we need to go after the people um who were issuing the letters of marque? the problem with that is that those those people usually do have a navy and the navy may not be enough to put down pirates but it's certainly not a navy you could defeat in in head-to-head battle with all of this said I still find that idea neat, Ian, about privateering to be something that's got some some merit to it somewhere because I think probably what the appeal of it is to me on in real time is that is that privateering offers an unexpected source of revenue and legitimacy. It is non it's non-conventional warfare, let's put it that way. Um I think that's something I'm going to have to think about, because if you could find a way to. You have to legitimate you have to socially legitimize something that the people who are writing the laws may declare to be illegal. That's a dicey proposition. And it has a lot of unintended consequences attached to it as well. That said, when, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. So that one some more thought. Let's see what else we got. Uh, Thank you for that question. Very good. Eric Blake. Hey, look at that. My gosh, first question of Eric's. It's, it's, I can read it without having to scroll the page. Uh, hey, Bill, assuming you haven't uh, discussed this yet tonight, and chances are good that I haven't. What are your thoughts on RFK Jr. campaigning to the primary Biden? You've said yourself the major advantage the Democrats have over us is that they have brand, namely, in your words, of the party Bobby Kennedy. Well, lo and behold, here's Bobby Kennedy Jr. literally. So will the Democrats be sufficiently aware of their brand to go for him, which, in my opinion, is the only their only real chance of beating Trump in twenty twenty four. I I saw a documentary put out by the same guys that did Died Suddenly called the Greatest Reset, and it is hard to find, and it's basically a year or two ahead of uh, Died Suddenly, and it gets to the whole web of things that are going on and some detail about Klaus Schwab and all these other forces. And it has a, it has a semi, um, a quasi religious tone to it because they're concerned that this is a metaphysical fight and I'm rapidly joining that club. And in that documentary, if I remember correctly, uh, RFK Jr. was one of the most outspoken advocates for getting these international elitists off our back it was he, he went way out on a limb and stated in perfectly clear terms that this was the primary threat to mankind and that they are responsible for a very, very, very grave kind against crime against humanity and that he meant to hold them accountable. So I don't think the issue is if Bobby Kennedy primaries um, Biden would, would uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. be able to beat Trump. My take on it is I'd love to have him primary Biden, because if he primaries Biden and beats Biden, then our worst case scenario gets much less worst case. Because to me, this is the number one threat to the country, is control of information, control of elitist control over institutions. And he apparently, well, I heard him, he came out very, very strongly against that. So if if you're to place Biden with anybody less horrible, you may say that well, it increases their chances of beating Trump, and that may be true. But as a person who's looked at some pretty shady shenanigans over the last several years, especially the last three, I'm kind of now at the point where I'm actually doing a, a significant number of calculations on how can we improve the worst-case scenario. Not so much what would the best-case scenario be. I'd I'd like the I'd like the mid-case scenario. I'm at the point like what can be done to um, to raise the worst case scenario, and that would certainly be it. Um, Marusha Dark said, that's why I wanted Tulsi Gabbard versus Trump in 2020. Now, as it turns out, my uh, right angle for this week, which should be up tomorrow morning is uh, Steve's show, so uh, day after tomorrow. Um, I was talking about, uh, I'm sorry, not Tulsi Gabbard. I beg your pardon, Marusha. I didn't mean to put words in your mouth. I was thinking of... um, Oh, come on. Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, uh, who's been widely mentioned as, you know, she's running for president of the United States of the Republican Party. Nikki Haley basically tweeted, hey, Disney, and pretty near verbatim, hey, Disney, um, if Florida doesn't want you, you're welcome to bring your 70,000 plus jobs here to South Carolina. It's always sunny here. And everybody's real nice we're not woke but we're not sanctimonious about it see what she did there i think that was a move to position herself as trump's vice president but put that aside the for nikki haley to come down on the side of disney means that she has no idea where these battle lines are being drawn either that or she does which is worse this isn't about Disney, and it's not about this idea that DeSantis has is, is, is pulled out these you know exceptional legal powers to to persecute this private company. It's a nice narrative. Basically, what he's saying is, listen, if you continue to indoctrinate our children and promote indoctrinating our children, we're going to revoke this courtesy that we've expended, extended you since the beginning of the 1970s. We're going to revoke the Reedy Creek um, uh, special economic area we we did you and your company did walt and the company a huge favor provided you this sweetheart deal in central Florida and you have turned it from a swamp into the largest uh the, the single greatest tourist destination in the world and that's good for both of us but mickey haley it's very funny uh, out there um but it is nevertheless a courtesy and it is And it is a courtesy that the state no longer wishes to extend you because you have basically said that you're not interested in what the the voters of this state have said. You're going to continue this campaign of subversion of of principles and morals when you shouldn't be. You should be producing entertainment. So if you're going to be a political operative, which you are, no question about that, you're no longer an entertainment company. You're a propaganda company now. So if you're going to be a political uh, entity, then I'm going to use my authority as governor to remove our political support of your political entity. Seems fair to me. Um, so, for Nikki Haley to say that, to me, tells me she doesn't have a clue because that's where the battle is. It's not Republicans and Democrats, it's really not even, you know, the. the 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 right or the left conservatives or liberals. It's really at the point now where there is a sane, and I believe significant majority of people still in this country versus a small and growing group of radicals that are determined to destroy the country in the name of justice. Uh, And they have used our decency and our tolerance against us for 30, 40 years now, and it's time to stop. And, uh, and I'm not happy that Donald Trump's on the wrong side of this issue because he is on the wrong side of this issue. He basically said the same things. Uh, you would think he would know. Now he may be doing that just to shoot at DeSantis, but you know, this is a core principle, Mr. President. Uh, it's a core principle. We would like this to stop now. It's gone way too far. You we know, we're not saying it's not, it's not an extermination thing. It's just that look, you are you are wokeism is being state sanctioned because. Because it's being taught in public schools the taxpayers of florida and the rest of the country are paying for people to turn their children against them they're, they're getting they're paying taxes to pay these blue-haired teachers who are 23 years old and want second graders to affirm their gender identity and we're paying them to do it and this is not about disney it's about it's about that dynamic and and i'm i'm surprised actually that donald trump doesn't see it that way um nevertheless um you know, you get what you get. Uh so as far as the Robert Kennedy thing goes, if, if it were Trump versus Robert Kennedy, I'd feel much, much, much better um than um than uh if it were Biden. So we'll see. What else we got here? the wrong tab it's right there. another Eric another two Eric's so let me move on and see if I can come back to them here so we got one from Joe Roth well Bill do you think this Biden crime family scandal that's unfolding will sink the Democrats or do you think that this will all just go into the dustbin of history as usual I think it will go into the dustbin of history Joe but I also think that dustbin is pretty much full that makes any sense you can only pack so much garbage into a garbage can I mean you can compress it as much as you want to and you can stack it and you can balance it but eventually you've got a mound of garbage that's so far above the lip of the garbage can that you simply cannot add any more garbage to it the trash can is saturated essentially and I think the garbage bin of history the dustbin of history is pretty much saturated as well so something to think about. At some point, something's got to give. Dinesh D'Souza says the only way to stop these gangsterized Democrats is to do exactly to them what they do to us. Amen. Dinesh has got it. I think we need to start prosecuting and jailing as many of these thieves as possible with no remorse. Throw Hillary in jail, throw Biden and his son in jail, throw Pelosi in jail, throw Merrick Garland in jail, weaponize the government against them twofold just to get rid of them. What do you think? Fight fire with a nuclear bomb? Sounds harsh, but who cares at this point? Well, first of all, uh, to take your analogy there, it's a great question, Joe. Take your analogy, we wouldn't be fighting fire with a nuclear bomb, we'd be fighting a nuclear bomb with a nuclear bomb, and, and that's something that needs to be stated right from the beginning. Calling somebody a racist or a, or a transphobe or saying you want to murder people because you disagree with them politically, that's a nuclear weapon and the left has been using that, especially the racist argument for great effect for 30 years now. Shut up, you're a racist, how dare you oppose our, our plans? And, and so they're fighting with nuclear weapons and they have been from the beginning, so I think it's time to retaliate with nuclear weapons, yes. Now, as far as jailing everybody, yes, I think there should be, there needs to be trials. And in this case, it is once again a case of, look, you guys brought this upon yourselves, okay? you, you. This is how I feel about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I've made the case in in the uh, atomic bombs afterburner that that the, the, there's no question about this, and I'm not going to have this discussion because it's the first thing I ever researched deeply. There's no question that dropping the atomic bomb saved millions of lives, not just American lives, millions of Japanese lives. The emperor admitted it after the fact. His warlord generals admitted it after the fact. So I'm not going to go into that whole story the atomic bombing saved lives especially when you consider that there were incendiary bombings going on all the time more people were killed in firebombing of tokyo than were killed in hiroshima or nagasaki combined probably but certainly individually so so once you so what my point about hiroshima was we didn't start this we didn't just decide to fly over japan one day and drop a nuclear weapon over hiroshima this is the end result of you It's the end result of your unchecked aggression. It's the end result of your perfidy. It's the end result of your defiance. It's the end result of your deception. It's the end result of your ambition. It's the end result of your inhumanity. And all of the rest of this, your pride, your expansionism, your, your miserable egos of the Japanese military clique that took over that country, this nuclear weapon is the end of a road that you started on, not us. We didn't start this thing, you did. So everything that happens after Pearl Harbor, is your fault. You are the instigator of it. See, I'm not able, I'm not, apparently I'm not smart enough to be able to talk my way out of understanding that there's a cause and effect. I know you have to be a big intellectual to not only eliminate cause and effect, to reverse it, to make the criminal, the person who's virtuous and the person defending themselves into the criminal. I'm not. I'm not that smart. I still believe that cause and effect have a thing to say about it. I think if the guy doesn't want to be choked on the, uh, accidentally choked to death, then probably he shouldn't be walking up and down the aisles of of, uh, subways punching people in the face for 30 years. I look at it that way. And so do I think it's great for us to go after all of these government officials and have trials and end up putting them in jail? No, I'm not happy about that. But do I think it's necessary? 100%. Yes, it's 100% necessary. And and those same standards need to be applied to Republicans as well. There you go. So um, I would... I would 100% be in favor of that. The problem is you can't, there are things that you, look, they they get away with what they get away with because they control the information flow. They could never get away with what they got away with in 2020. Put put aside all the behind the scenes machinations everywhere else. If the FBI had not colluded with Twitter and Facebook and said, there's a story going to be coming out about Hunter Biden's laptop, it's false. Don't run it. It's Russian, Russian disinformation. If those elitist swine had decided it's a news story, it's sourced. I think the people need a right to decide. Then Biden wouldn't be president because all of that, all of that evidence would have been play in play if we'd had a a press and if we had not had an FBI. I'm not trying to cut slack for for, uh, Twitter or Facebook or any of these guys. But when the FBI comes to you and says that this is disinformation, that mitigates their decision to suppress it, in my mind anyway, somewhat, right? So this is a combination of, of uh, tech companies with their desire to control things and their godlike ambitions and intelligence services with their desire to control things and have godlike ambitions and politicians who have a desire to control things that have godlike ambitions and big, big financial guys who have... Uh, determined to control things and have godlike ambitions those are the enemies those have to be dealt with so the whole point about bringing up the hiroshima thing and it's your fault is i'm not happy about this but you're the ones who who put put this 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 raid on donald trump's um, mar-a-lago house we saw it on tv you're the ones that wanted to do that on national television you're the ones that wanted to drag a former president into a courtroom you're the ones that wanted to get him handcuffed and headshot and 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 fingerprinted and all the rest, once you made that cowardly decision, based on the flimsiest of evidence, by the way, once you made that cowardly decision, you didn't have the guts to do the handcuffs or the mugshot because you knew that that would be used against you by people who don't want to be turned into criminals by the press or the tools of this corrupt government. So I say yes. I say absolutely yes. I say we, we, we try them all. And I say in this country, none of the people whose names we mentioned are particularly low on funds they won't get um, they won't get public defenders they'll get the best attorneys in the world and the very best attorneys in the world as oj simpson will testify can be very good at arguing their way out of things and that's exactly the way i want it because i want them to have the best possible defense legal defense available to them to these murderers and traitors i think they should have them best defense that money can buy, both Biden and Hillary and Obama, all of them, whoever you bring charges against. And the reason I think that they should have excellent legal defense is because if you're going to bring that case, that case had better be so airtight that you are convinced that you can win it against the best defense minds in the in the country, in the world. That's the standard of proof that I would want. I would, If, if, if I were running the new and improved Justice Department, I would say in order for us to bring these charges i want everything locked down everything locked down i don't want there to be a single thing in here if i want if i would if it was my justice department i would mock trial this thing three or four times i really would internally i would do it three or four times i'd actually even hire a good defense attorney prior to bringing charges something like that i would i would test it and test it and test it. And if it turned out that there were no pre-existing errors, like the whole thing with, um, oh, what was his name? The police lieutenant who um, who apparently had said some things that people considered racist in, in the OJ case, and there was a moment of doubt about the, the, the provenance of the evidence chain, And so it turns out that somebody could have taken OJ's blood from him at night while he was sleeping in a hypodermic and then come in and squirted it into this thing, you know, um, what's the name, Mark, um, oh gosh. The OJ trial was fun to watch. Furman, thank you very much. Uh, Chris in Toronto with him in there. Mark Furman. So Furman gave them wiggle room. Because a lot of people in that jury didn't want to convict O.J., and there was this whole racial divide thing And when, when he was found uh, not guilty. Uh, a lot of people in the black community cheered. Even though they knew he was guilty, they saw this as reparations for the number of uh, cases that had gone against innocent black people. I, I'm, I'm past caring about that. But Furman gave them some wiggle room. But the biggest, the, the trial turned, in my opinion, I watched most of it, the the prosecution lost that trial. When was his name Darden? The uh, who's the not not uh, God? All these names are so close to me. Um, Marsha Clark, right, was the lead uh, prosecutor, and then she had an assistant prosecutor, um, who of course had to be a black man. You had to have a woman as a prosecutor. had to have a black man as the, as the associate assistant prosecutor because this is all about race, and no longer about justice. And this was back in, what, 1999 or 97 or something? 96, 98, somewhere around there. Um, but that guy, who was it? Um, because he lost, the, he lost the case. I'm not saying they would have won it otherwise, but he certainly lost it. Um, Darden. Um, because he committed the, uh, the, the number one sin that uh, everybody knows from watching a single episode of Perry Mason or any one single court case, court movie ever, ever, ever. The one thing that non-lawyers know about lawyering is never, ever, ever ask a question you do not already know the answer to. And that first time I heard that, I said that makes perfect, perfect, perfect sense to me. Do not ever ask a question you do not already know the answer to. So when when Darden says, come on down and try these gloves on, professional actor, O.J. Simpson comes down and as he's pulling the glove on, he's spreading his fingers. He's putting tension on the gloves. And it only comes down this far. Look, see, this is this is visual evidence that people who don't follow the intricacies of the of the court can say, What the, the gloves don't fit? And then you got a wordsmith like Johnny Cochran coming up. Well, if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. Apparently people like that kind of rhetoric. I would find it uh demeaning and, um, and very condescending. If somebody told me that like, this is a murder trial, we're not We don't need slogans. Like you need two wings to fly. Kind of just keep that to yourself. But once he did that, it was over because it gave people who wanted to acquit him reasonable doubt. Now I didn't want to acquit him. I know what DNA is and I know what, what that level of certainty is. So when i forget if it was um nicole simpson or ron goldman's blood was found in O.J.'s car something like that and just the fact that he ran it it, no question he did it none none and you know we lost that case so if i were going to go after people like hillary clinton and you know and biden crime family and all the rest of it i would i would make sure that there was nothing pre-existing like the Furman thing to trip it up and then I would go and slap everybody on this case on my team and I'd slap them about the face again and again and again. And I'd say, this is too important for you to F up because you've got something that's not in the plan. We're not gonna improvise. We're not gonna have any brilliant courtroom moments. You're not going to stand there and realize you've suddenly trapped somebody. You are going to follow the prosecutorial script to its conclusion because if we have enough evidence to bring this case, then all we can do is screw it up. It's ours to lose. That's how I would do it. And I'll and I'll I'll say one more thing about this from terms of tactics, strategy, and um, and this whole idea. In a cases like this, normally in, in a, if it's an organized crime case, you might want to start from the top down. But in cases like this, I absolutely would start from the bottom up. I would convict Hunter Biden. Well, before I went after Joe Biden, I would have him convicted and in prison before I brought charges against Joe Biden, because this is an incremental thing that has to happen in terms of public perception. And so I would have, um, who was that oily bastard in the FBI who, who, um, brain's not functioning today. I guess I've just displaced it with other information, like, you know, major Matt Mason stuff. Uh, I I was so close. I took my tongue. Um, the guy who sent the emails, you know, uh, yeah, Strzok. I'd go after Strzok before I'd go after Comey. Now, I remember James Comey. I know James Comey. I'm not talking about him. I go Strunk? I forget how to pronounce his name. Yeah, the guy who did the, um, yeah, we sent emails, me and this uh, other agent who I was sleeping with, um, John Pershing says, that oily bastard in the FBI, that's a pretty big basket. Um, now, Strunk. I would go after him first and I would secure that. I would secure that um, prosecution. I'd win that case and I'd have him in jail. So now I built a platform, right? I'm not going after the big dog yet because the consequences of that are very high. You've got to slowly convince people who have not been following the story from both sides that you're not just suddenly going after knocking off these guys who caused you trouble. You have to show this. Very low level of corruption. Look at that. It's oh, well, that's pretty much compelling evidence. And then his guy above him. What about him? Yeah, here's some more evidence of him. And what about the guy above him? Well, the Guy above him is James Comey. Yeah, but is there evidence? Well, it turns out there is. It's starting to look like a systemic problem here, right, in the Department of Justice. Does it stop with Comey? Well, there's actually a lot to, that we need to look at with, um, you know, with Merrick Garland and and um, and, and Obama's two attorney generals, I don't know what in my memory today, it's probably just old age, just vacuums appearing inside my brain tissue. Um, and, and stuff there as well. And so um, we'd start looking at that. Uh, and then, then you get to the point when, okay, so we've shown that these low-level FBI guys committed these crimes. And no question about that, they're in jail. No one's going to feel sorry for Strump. He's a he's a, yeah the guy who looks like a sloth. Yes. Um, so we're not going to have any issues about him. And then we're going to go to the next level, we're going to persecute them. Then we're going to the next level and we're going to go after Comey. If we can get Comey, then we can say, look, where did Comey's instructions come from? Well, they came from, um, uh, I want to say Loretta something. Obama's two um, uh, attorney generals, Loretta Lynch and Eric Holder. Thank you. Yeah. So now, now I've shown that the the bottom level of the agency is corrupt. The middle, ag- the middle level of the FBI is corrupt. The top level of the FBI is corrupt. The person who's in charge of the FBI is the attorney general. They're corrupt. And then I would go at who appointed these corrupt people that turn this entire agency corrupt. That's how I would prosecute the case. I would just simply build it very slowly. And if it took me two, three years, that's fine. Here's the foundation. Here's case after case after case after case. And these agents doing these weird things that I'd go after all those secret service guys who spent their you know, emergency money on hookers and all the rest of I just basically show situa- the entire organization is corrupted. It's not all corrupt, but it there is corruption in it. And then I just keep walking that thing up the stairs. And eventually, when you walk it up the stairs high enough, you find yourself limited to a very small number of people whose names end in Clinton and Obama and Biden and, and the rest of it. And I would also go real hard on... This is if I was the Attorney General and we had a department... Look, if we have a Department of Justice back, then it's game over for them. Game over. But... Um, that's what I would do, and I would also, because I know how public opinion works. This is why it's valuable to have a uh, a writer or a person at least understands the English, the power of the English language on your team. If you're going to try something this big, I would also continuously, continuously work in the moral depravity as well as the technical corruption, which most people don't see as a crime. I'd go right to the moral depravity. I would. I would. Basically, crack that Epstein Island log wide open, and I would start reading the names, and then I'd start asking some questions. I was, I not I was surprised to see that, and this is, make sure I say this right because this is actual name, but I recall seeing that Stephen Colbert's name was allegedly on that list of people who um, who had visited Epstein's Island, and. That's allegedly, I have no evidence that he was. I just remember seeing that it was mentioned there. So if it turns out that you could prove these allegations in a court of law, now you can start to make the case that the entire system, how how corrupt is it? It's so corrupt that nighttime nighttime hosts of, of, of talk shows are on the island flying with these people. Don't you understand? This is not like... So when 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 the when somebody who, who may or may not be Steve uh, Colbert launches these endless attacks on Donald Trump, what's supposed to be a talk and comedy show, it's not a disinterested party here. He's not only got a side that he's picked, he also has tremendous legal exposure if this guy is, is elected. So, you know, there you go. It's all, it's got to be done, it's got to be done very, very carefully. Thank you very much for that, Jonathan uh, Tay, for that, uh, for that $14 super chat that says thank you. That's, that's just great. So I would simply do it, and I would, I, would, I would lay the whole, I'd lay out the whole meta in advance. I would just go into a room with a few people who are untouchable, morally untouchable. People had already passed that moral test. People had already shown that they'd been offered bribes or they'd been offered a chance to get defense contracts or whatever and have turned it down. I'd find people who who were morally unimpeachable. I'd have them all watching each other because the level of influence here and leverage is unimaginable. Yeah, Eric Blake said you should put James O'Keefe on it completely. I would do all of that. And then I would lay out the meta. What? So what's the strategy? Well, the strategy is to get all of these people that have corrupted these organizations. Going forward through time, these people have appeared at the top and the corruption has worked its way down. In order to get them, we're going to have to run the clock backwards, which means we're going to have to start at the bottom and follow the corruption all the way up to the top. Because if you start at the top, people who haven't seen any of the rest of the story are going to assume it's all just a political witch hunt and justified in doing that after what they did to Trump. But I want to win. I don't want to. I don't want to just feel good about things, and I'd feel better about things, frankly, if it was not only airtight but showed the damage that these people had done. It's not just that Hillary Clinton, or or Obama, or or Loretta Lynch. It's not just that they were corrupt. It's that they corrupted entire institutions that were the bedrock, significant part of the protection of this society, and that and that these institutions have been seriously, if not mortally, damaged, and and that they're responsible for this, and. And we need to repair it. But before we can repair it, we got to find out how sick we are. That's what I would do with it. Um, and thank you very much for a super chat from Woods Precision's Arms here. you got to like a name like that. Really tired of Trump and others attacking DeSantis using Democrat talking points. It's disgusting. So, what, so what's Haley, Haley saying? We are okay with indoctrination of sex to our kids in SC? Yes, that's what she's saying. And yes, it's very disappointing that Donald Trump is on the wrong side of this issue. I, I just don't think there's any question he's on the wrong side of this issue. But I also know that, that Donald Trump is who he is. And and the reason Trump fights back at town hall people and the reason he'll bite back at a CNN uh, host is because Donald Trump is a bulldog who has spent his entire life in the most ruthless environment in the world, which is New York real estate. So he attacks things and, and barks and bites at things that maybe he should give a second look to. That's not going to change. That's just not. That's just, that's the deal. You know, Grant drinks. Uh, try to keep the bottle away from Grant as much as possible. And that's exactly what they did, by the way. Worked out really well. He had a chief of staff who was his conscience, who was basically following around like Jiminy Cricket all the time, saying, you know, if you touch this, if you touch another bottle, I'm out of here. And not only am out of here, I'm going to tell the press. And so they kind of kept, Kept Grant on the on the wagon until he won the Civil War. Um, so there's that. Yeah, Marisha Dark said, uh, started the quote, I cannot spare this man, Lincoln said. He fights. That's the way I feel about Trump. We can't spare this man. He fights, even if he's fighting the wrong people. Sometimes he fights. So um, Eric says it's understandable because it's a capitalist argument that the government should stay out of business yes but the business won't stay out of government that's the problem with disney when i say the business won't stay out of government the business won't stay out of the business of indoctrinating kids at state sponsored at state run and and funded schools so they have become a political organization now they're no longer just a, a corporate uh, private uh, enterprise now they are a political operative and now now it's a political fight so there you go Let's see what else we got uh, just did one from Joe just got a real long in there I'm gonna we'll have to pass on that one okay we got two from uh Dents here let's take a look at that how many do we have here I have to have a good one for Road Rider Chris Taylor has one from Steve Young Jacob Belchick and Marussia not there's no way not a chance um i'll take i'll do i'll just take what i can here uh see so which one of these two from um see so which one of these two from my chapter that i like caravans which one do I haven't covered yet. oh it's the same question Uh, I did not plant this question. Uh, And uh, those of you who are going to make shrieking comments about, oh, God, no, another airplane issue. Um, Hey, Bill, I saw a documentary on YouTube, Genius of the Jet, the Inventor of the Jet Engine, about Frank Whittle, who invented the jet engine in 1929. I was wondering if you had any relation to him, as I've never heard you talk about him. I know about the ME-262, but I had no idea that it had come out of... uh, Great Britain, or that Whittle had designed it back when most airplanes still had cloth on their wings. I'd love to get your perspective on the massive missed opportunity in World War II and whether or not you've ever heard Rutan talk about him. And then he gives me a link to the documentary. Thank you. I don't think I've ever talked about Frank Whittle, not in any detail, so I'll do about that briefly from a political point of view. Um, Thank you for the question. So if you look up it's, I don't know if it's in Wikipedia, but you will often see that the jet invention was co-invented by uh, Frank Whittle in Great Britain and then a German guy in um, in Germany, and the the claim is that both of them independently found their way to the jet engine, but that's not true. the the, the German the guy admitted that the German guy admitted that he read all of Whittle's papers. He found he found a um, a government that was much more willing to take long, long shot risks, especially since they were basically printing their own money. And that was um, Adolf Hitler. So in the 20s, he, he made the invention in 1929. So th- the entire story of Great Britain in the 30s is basically covering their eyes and ears and looking down at the ground and pretending like Hitler wasn't there. So they had no incentive to um, to finance this wacky invention. The problem with a wacky invention like the jet engine is you have to really build one and build an airplane around it in order to show people what it's capable of. And he just couldn't find the, the, the sponsorship for it. Now, Hitler, on the other hand, knows that he's outnumbered in, in so many ways, especially in the 30s. Right. So he knows he's got to have some kind of technological edge. That's what this edition I'm working on now of the Cold War is, is that certainly for the last half of the Cold War, it was a question of quality versus quantity. The Soviets can put more tanks in the field and they're willing to lose a lot more men than we're willing to lose. They can make more jets than our, than we can put out. And we care about our guys and they don't. So we're going to have to have weapons that can kill 10 to 20 of theirs for every one of ours that we lose. And that's that's how the Cold War went. So. So Hitler had that had that well, if we can't match them in quantity, we're going to have to have better stuff. That's the story behind the Tiger tank and the type, was it, 21 U-boat and all the other, you know, the ME-262. He took all of these long shots because he didn't, because he had to. The U.S. could, the 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 P-51, put aside whether the P-51 was a better airplane than the ME-262. The ME-262 had 100 miles an hour on the P-51, had bigger guns, right? But the United States didn't have to go to the me 262 because what they didn't because we didn't have to hitler could not produce enough conventional good airplanes He had to have these miracle weapons and the problem with the me 262 and the tiger and the king tiger and all the rest of it was they're tremendously effective but they are mechanically prone to failure and so in World War II America went with quantity while the Nazis went with quality And usually we're on the other side of that argument. We were on the other side of it pretty much since then. Um, So that's the sort of the backstory for why uh, Frank Whittle didn't get to do it. So a a jet engine is one of the simplest things in the world. I guess the only thing simpler than a jet engine is a rocket engine. Uh, And the thing about a jet engine that I've always been impressed by is that the the, the simplicity is a byproduct of, of its genius. The jet engine revolutionized the world because Frank Whittle understood the power, not the power of fuel, not the power of design. Frank Whittle understood the power of oxygen. That's what it's all about. It's about oxygen. How much oxygen can you get to the system? Because oxygen is the reagent. That's the thing that makes things boom and and burn and give you energy. You're not limited by what The energy level in the fuel is, you're limited by the amount of oxygen you can induce into that reaction. So we'll just take a real simple example here. If I have a piston engine airplane at sea level, it's developing full power at sea level. That's because it is letting air pressure put put the air pressure, ambient air pressure is going into the cylinders. And when those cylinders compress that air, whatever oxygen was in ground level, sea level, regular air, that's the oxygen that's available to the airplane to make energy. And every foot you go higher, the air gets thinner. The oxygen content as a ratio doesn't change, but the total amount of oxygen gets lower and lower because the air gets thinner. So once you started flying conventional piston airplanes, much above, really start to feel it around 7,000, 8,000 feet and and above 12 or 13,000 feet, your your piston engine airplanes are developing, you know, 40% maybe of the power that they develop at sea level. It's nice to travel up there because the air is thin, but the problem is the air is thin so you can't get enough oxygen into that cylinder. So what do we do about that? Well, before they invented the jet engine, they said, okay, I got an idea. Let's do this. Why don't we put a, uh, we'll take a, a hairdryer, a blow dryer, which they didn't have back then. You get the general idea. And we'll put a blow dryer on each one of these cylinders here. And we're going to take regular outside air and we're going to compress it, just mechanically compress it. We're just going to blow it into the, into the cylinders. That's going to give it more oxygen at higher levels of altitude. Basically what you're trying to do with a, with one of these compressors called either a turbocharger if it's driven by exhaust gas or a supercharger if it's driven by some other external mechanical thing like a belt off of the engine crankshaft or something. Superchargers and turbochargers are creating sea-level atmospheric pressure inside a piston cylinder up to 25,000, 30,000 feet, maybe, maybe a little bit higher than that. And that's a good point, too. Airtech, he says the American solution was high octane gas as well. He's right. By using a fuel with a higher energy content, even though the fuel is not the limiter, you are maximizing the amount of energy per unit of oxygen. But the unit of oxygen was the real was the real uh, limiting factor. So the genius of Frank Whittle was to say, OK, so how much pressure can you get into a cylinder? And all of the complexity, you know, the right, right cyclone engine, the kind of engine that's on a B-17, had, I think I want to say had 20,000 moving parts, rods, pistons, lifters, pins, crankshafts, bearings, you know, all this stuff. And by the way, a, a piston engine is, is just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And to turn that into a rotary, a rotary motion to drive a propeller... That's a lot of vibration, no matter how well balanced it is, no matter how well you do it, you're still dealing with taking a back and forth motion and turning that into a rotary motion. And there's a loss of efficiency, obviously, when you do that, and vibration, all the rest of it. So up until Frank Whittle, you've got supercharged, turbocharged engines, and they're letting you perform at sea level, power levels up to, let's say, 20, 30,000. Now, Frank realized that if you, if you go through the air fast enough, if you just go fast enough through the air, the air will compress itself. You'll just push more oxygen molecules in there per unit of time just because the thing's scooping up that much more air. And all you have to do is just add fuel to that compressed air. And since now you have more oxygen than you have in a piston engine, you get much more of a reaction and you shoot that jet thrust out the air. That's called a ramjet. The ramjet is extraordinarily simple. Um, The ramjet is just a... Its just a hollow tube basically with injectors on the end that you squirt fuel into and you ignite it and and its motion through the air is compressing the air inside the cylinders inside the, the jet uh, the body of the jet engine, which is great and works just great, especially when you're in hypersonic speeds, but it doesn't work at all when you're standing still. When you're standing still, you get nothing, nothing. So. What Frank Whittle just realized the genius was, was instead of taking a turbine to compress air and put that compressed air into a mechanical cylinder that went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and all of the all of the lost efficiency, what Frank realized was instead of having all these little turbines driving all these little cylinders, technically speaking, one supercharger going to all these different cylinders but to the idea, instead of putting them into this back and forth mechanical thing, why don't we just have this big rotating com- turbine blade compress air into an addition chamber cut out the middleman cut out all of the weight the complexity the heat loss all of it cut all of this back and forth the right cyclone engine i want to say has it 16 cylinders maybe more screw all that put it in pressurize this jet core You can do that at sea level because you don't have to be moving. It's that rotating turbine in the front that's going to do the compressing. works just fine at sea level. And then once you've got enough air pressure inside the jet engine, inject some fuel in there. And now the oxygen content is so high that your reaction is much better than you would ever get with a cylinder. You're just putting more oxygen into the mix. And this is why jet engines... Are so effective and the reason I keep coming back to the oxygen is the jet engine is compressing oxygen and and that's increasing the oxygen load but when you get into a liquid rocket engine if you compress oxygen enough and you can keep it cold enough oxygen will compress from a gas into a liquid and liquid oxygen the energy density of liquid oxygen is monumental there are videos out there on YouTube. If you look at somebody who takes liquid oxygen and pours it on a regular background, a backyard charcoal burner, right? Just something you'd cook your hamburgers on. Just the, the, just not even on fire. It's just the coals are glowing red. Some guy reaches out with tongs and pours liquid oxygen on that thing. And it looks like, it looks like the, like the starship liftoff. It's just, it's astonishing how much fuel there is released and how much energy there is. So, there is the next step. So Frank Whittle did all of this and the British government wouldn't back him. By weird, I'm not directly related to him, although without question, uh, we are related on some level because uh, the name Whittle is is actually uh, derived from uh, the White Hill region of Lancashire. And so all of the Whittles in the world came from pretty much that same area up near Wigan, uh, Wigan, Wigan, not Wigan, uh, coal mining area. So uh, all of us White Hills uh, are from that neck of the woods. So we are undoubtedly connected, not too far back there. Uh, and it's always been a nice, um, been a nice thing about being an avi- aviation guy to have a you know right, Whittle was the inventor of the jet engine. Now I will tell you one thing that is really, really quite astonishing in terms of um, just sheer coincidence. I've talked so many times about seeing the Thunderbirds in Bermuda and, uh, and and how it just rewired me instantly. It rewired me so much that on the way home from seeing the Thunderbirds, I begged my dad to stop at the, I think the one or two toy stores they had on the entire island, which were not super well stocked in Hamilton, on the, in the, really the only city in Bermuda. It's not even a real city, it's just a large town. So on the way back from on that very day, on the way back from the show at Kinley Air Force Base, which is on one end of the island in St. George, we went to Hamilton and we went to a toy toy store and we started seeing if there were any model airplanes in there. And in that toy store were two things that looking back on it, I find to be absolutely astonishing. One of them was there was an F-100 hanging on strings from the ceiling. That's the jet that we just saw an hour ago. Um... And I said, my God, it's the same jet. And my dad said, can we buy that one? Yeah, absolutely. So so we got that. And the other thing we got was the first model kit I ever built. First plastic kit I ever built, ever. A little, tiny, little box like this. And it was for an airplane called the Gloucester Whittle, uh, which was the first British experimental jet. And like most things British, it looked very British. It had a tiny, rounded tail, but essentially, it's like every other jet. It's a big tube with a hole in one end and fire coming out the back. Um, so the Gloucester Meteor came later. The Gloucester Whittle was the, was the first test bed for this. They didn't mass produce it. But by some weird coincidence, there on the toy store shelf in Hamilton, Bermuda, was the airplane kit for the Gloucester Whittle. So I begged my dad for that too. It, he being also a Whittle, managed to convince him that this was a worthwhile investment. So we left that hobby shop with a finished F100 and a plastic model for a Gloucester Whittle, which I have never ever done before, never done a plastic model before. How hard can it be? So we got it home. I took it out. I saw all the instructions. You glue this to that. And so I I took the glue that we had, which was the kind of glue that you have a rubber applicator on and you would just glue onto a surface if you wanted to glue two pieces of paper together, like sign an envelope or something. And uh, for some reason, this uh, this um, thin, watery glue used to glue two pieces of paper together didn't work on the plastic. I might as well have used, it wasn't rubber cement. It was just plain, you could buy a bottle of glue. Essentially, think of it as paste, right? Um, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm mystified and, and, and uh, defeated and, uh, you know, well upset about this. So then my dad gets to the uh, instruction thing, and it says, you know, you must use this particular kind of glue. And I'd never seen that kind of glue before. And I don't know if it was available. We certainly didn't have it with us. It might have had it at the store. It might have had to send out for it. It must have had it at the store. So I had to sit with this model for two or three days until we get back there. just burning on fire to get this thing done. And then I'd get the right glue for this, uh, which was about that long. And it was a a a white and silver red and silver or red and white i don't remember but it said testers testers airplane glue and um and i put that stuff on there and uh they said just hold it for 20 30 seconds and i did and it's like wow this stuff works great got kind of a funny smell though that original glue was astonishing i have after i gave up Model making was a long, long time ago, but I must have built a hundred, easily a hundred plastic models. And I had heard that after I'd gotten out of it, they had reformulated testers because just like with, you know, with everything else that's useful, somebody's going to abuse it. And the answer won't be to stop the abuse. The answer will be to ban the product. Um, so that's what they did. They reformulated it. And it apparently uh, was not nearly as as good. I never sniffed the original glue because I'd heard about it after. I mean, I was many years later when I was probably early teens or something. Heard about people sniffing glue, and I thought, isn't that a, isn't that killing your brain cells? Yeah, you try it. It's great. I'm gonna. I'm pretty much gonna need all of them. I think. Um, so um, yeah, it looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. I told you guys about this show we did in Gainesville when I went back there the second time called Grazing. And it was a sketch comedy show. I was a director on and head writer on. We had some really, really talented people. And there was a, at the time, there was like a, like an HMO that was advertising heavily in, in Gainesville in Alachua County there. I forget the name of it. Let's just say it was called True Health. That wasn't the name, but let's just say it's called True Health. So they were doing all of these ads, and the theme of the ads were here are the warning signs that you might be, uh, you know, candidate for a stroke. Here are the warning signs that, you know, you might have arterial uh, hardening or whatever. A couple of these ads, right? So there were, I think there were three or four of us in the control room. It was about two o'clock in the morning. We had a guy named Jeff who, um, who worked for the cable company and they had in those days, if you had a cable act, if you had a cable company go into a neighborhood or community, they had to provide public access as part of the deal, but they had to provide a studio and a control room and people to run it. And our friend Jeff was one of the, one of the original group members. He was, he was not a writer. He was a technician, but he had the keys to the building. So we were sitting in there, um, and, uh. And we were thinking, all right, and I'm virtually, I know it was, yeah, there's, thank you very much. It's so handy to have. Uh, that's exactly the, hang on a second, I got to just copy it. Uh, hold that thought. I'm just going to show you this. Somebody was kind enough to put a link in. Here we go. I'm going to do a quick screen grab and show you the, uh, the Gloucester, Whittle, uh, which is prototype jet circa 1941. 1941, folks, that's way, way before the 262 hit the skies in any significant numbers so here is uh, what uh, what uh, cuz uh, this is what the Gloucester aircraft company had put had put around the Whittle uh, jet engine and of course I oh I can move it this time my god will miracles never cease I told you it was a British looking airplane and I remember that paint scheme very well I haven't seen that camouflage scheme since I built that model so thank you for that that's a 50 year old memory uh more probably um but that little tail and the, you know, look at, look at that massive exhaust pipe there, boy. That's, that just speaks power. But still, that, that, that little crummy little airplane outrun anything that was in the sky at the time. And uh, that's, uh, that's up to free. So anyway, we were doing this brazen um, thing. Uh, and we, I, knew, I all I remember about it was it was late at night. We just finished recording something. It took hours and hours in the studio. We did a lot of sketches in the studio. And we'd wrapped up for the night and we were had to edit it on tape with the pre-roll on the tape. Non-linear editing is the most amazing thing in the world. If you have to edit from tape to tape, if you make one, you cannot go back to anything prior to the previous tape. It's like, here's a brick, another brick on top of it, another brick on top of it, another brick on top of it, another brick on top of it. You want to make this brick any bigger? Okay, you got to tear all these other bricks down and build them all up again. can't just expand it. It's like a typewriter, kids. Different between a typewriter and a word processor. So we, it was late, and we were there, you know, early in the morning. We're all pretty punch drunk and tired. And somebody said, you know, we ought to do a parody of these true health things. Like, um, and then somebody else said, like, like, what are some of the warning signs that your son is sniffing glue? And we came up with a, a, a couple of things that we liked a lot, and then Ron was the funniest guy I ever knew, who uh, died a few years ago of cancer. Ron, we're sitting there brainstorming this, and he said, I've got a warning sign, I said, what? He says, calls grandmother a dirty whore at Thanksgiving. And I, I just laughed so hard, I, I just, I, I don't know if I've ever laughed that hard. I probably have laughed that hard, but I've never laughed harder than that. I just went down to the ground, and there were three of us in the room, and we were holding on to the furniture. Part of that was being tired, but I just thought it was so perfect. Call's grandmother a dirty whore at Thanksgiving. So we got when we shot the sketch, we got this kid, you know, teenager sitting looking down, and they got the music, and we're doing like this push in on him, warning signs that your five warning signs that your your child may be uh, snipping glue, and we build up, build up, build up, and then, and then the number two reason, you know, from five, four, three, two, the number two reason was calls grandma a dirty whore at Thanksgiving. And the number one sign that a kid that your kid might be um, sniffing glue was, and right then on the number one thing, he looks up and we took Vaseline. Those of you not familiar with it, it's a kind of a clear petroleum jelly, which has its own unique smell. And we took like a fistful of Vaseline and just put it all over a space and it looked exactly, exactly like plastic, model glue. I mean, it just, was just caked on He's blowing bubbles out of his nose when he exhaled. And the number one sign was that your kid uses a lot of glue. Um, and we, I always thought that was, that was one of the high points of my entire time there, doing that show back at the University of Florida on my second tour of duty there when we went down and did... Uh, yes, Bill, we all know what Vaseline is. I'd be willing to bet you, Eric, that not everybody who's watching the show does know what Vaseline is. I'd be willing to bet you there are significant numbers of people... watching this now or who will watch this in the decades and and centuries to come who will uh, not know what I'm talking about but I will tell you this the same people that made Vaseline made Vicks Rub, and apparently when you had a cold all I remember as a kid was my mom taking some of this stuff and I'm in flannel pajamas and she'd smear this on your chest and it had this you know It's like smelling salts, you know, this vapor rub. It makes this vapor that apparently puts this, you know, fight or flee thing into your reptile brain. And apparently, this clears your sinuses. But all I remember about it was, my God, the smell. And then, and then that, that, that sense of like the flannel pajamas going onto this, onto your chest, which is covered in this goop. Good God, that was nasty. Yeah, it's menthol, right? Exactly right, Coffee. Shinato, it's menthol. And it was like, oh. Oh, just oh. Now, no, no. You boys go to sleep. Oh, mom, why, why, why? It's just why. Horrible, horrible, horrible feeling. And 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 flannel pajamas. Forget about it. Um. So. Uh, that's uh. That's that story. I think at this point. Um, I'm going to have to live up to my earlier um, explanation for ejecting from the show less than two hours. In fact, uh, one hour and 22 minutes into it, something like that. I actually genuinely do have a, a great deal of stuff I have to do and I have to do it in the next couple of days. And it's not like I've taken on a new, uh, you know, writing project. That's going to tie me up for the next six months. It's just honestly, um, Just got to get done by next Thursday. By the way, uh, speaking of sniffing glue, I'll give you one last story for a, at no additional charge. Um, uh, so we never sniff glue, but in what grade would I have been in? I probably was in third or fourth grade. I was at Warwick Academy in Bermuda. I went to... Port Royal Elementary School, went to Warwick Academy and then went to Saltis Grammar School. Those are three impressive sounding names and they were impressive schools. I was at Warwick Academy and we were on the, out in the recess in the back there and a couple of guys were kind of huddled up, you know, and they were talking about something and we lived in mortal terror of um, assistant headmasters in those days because uh, they would cane you. And so we were well-behaved kids because we didn't want to get caned and that's why I'm in favor of caning as a general rule, although I am not quite as dedicated as my ancestors to the ideas of giving students a fatal beating. Nevertheless, um, uh, face in a little plastic bag? No, but close to that. Uh, you know, so, so these kids are all huddled up, and I'm thinking, uh, what, what's going on here? And I'm Mr. Goody Two-Shoes anyways. So it's, it's pathetic. Uh, first in your class, seven years in a row, you get got standards upheld, right? So I, um, you know what, what are you guys doing? And they said, uh, well, you know, we can let you know, but you can't tell anybody. He said, yeah, what? I said, all right, so watch this. So we're all, you know, watch what? Because most of these guys hadn't seen this before either. And this one kid kind of squats down, I guess, and he starts taking like really, really deep breaths. <gasps> <sighs> Lots of those. Now, I knew this pretty well because my dad had told me that if you do that, you oxygenate your blood and I could swim at my, at my prime, I could swim the length of an Olympic swimming pool. I could dive in on one end, go to the far end back and then back to the other side underwater without stopping. That's, that's a fair amount of time underwater. I was at pretty good capacity back then. So he's just breathing all this game, breathing all this game. And then, and then he, he takes a final deep breath, put his thumb in his mouth and blew on it with his lips closed and go like that. And then the kid just goes, just gone. gone he's out huh he's probably out for four or five seconds something like that what what happened we don't know we just we just heard about it and and it works and and like most kids in that time i don't know if it's still true today i like to think it's true today, at least true for little boys who are less sensible than little girls which is why we do all the fun stuff uh I said, I gotta try this. I I w I wanna go next. So I did. Um, and I I had no idea what it was. I, I didn't know if I was blowing my completely blowing my you know aorta to pieces or whatever. I didn't care. I was indestructible. Eight, nine, nothing happened to you then. And so um, it wasn't even a high. I just remember doing it, and then I remember just things going dark. And then the next thing I remember is looking up at the sky and people like smacking me on the face like that. I'd be curious to know if anybody knows why that happened. Um, because uh, the doesn't pack oxygen. It flushes out CO2, which triggers breathing impulse when it rises in the bloodstream. I did not know that, J.B. Coulter. I actually spent my entire life thinking I was oxygenating myself but in point of fact, I was flushing CO2. It's fascinating because it's, I guess it's the ultimately, it's that buildup of CO2 that makes you want to finally just give up after you've done down, back, and down again. It's like, I <gasps> can't take it anymore. Lungs are about to explode. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, that's basically um, what we did. Uh, these three stories are about to link through. Questions, answered. just say, and we'll never let you live it down. Well, I don't care. Um, I just remember thinking like, that's just really cool. Just really cool. Anybody know why that why that does that? Because you just go out. And if you just do the hold your breath and blow thing, nothing. But if you if you really breathe deeply for a while, I get the feeling if I did it today, it wouldn't happen. I don't know why, but I just went out. I also remember being incredibly impressed with myself. <laughs> At right around that same time, uh, I had seen a karate movie somewhere. It was before it was before um, Kung Fu. So I'd seen karate movie, you know, like this. And and back in the sixties, if you if you if you were like a spy or something you wanted to knock somebody out, you didn't use the like the bulk and nerve pitch. You just gave them a karate chop like that all you had to do was use the flat of your hand hit somebody on the neck that's a karate chop and they'd go down and i was so impressed by that i was so impressed by that it's all it takes yep just got to hold your hand just like that and just down they would go i tried it didn't work so well on, on other kids but i do remember getting oohs and ahs for about three minutes because i took a pencil a pencil and I held it down against the desk on the, on top of the desk. And then with my other hand, I went Hwop! and gave it a karate chop and it broke the pencil. Imagine that it broke the pencil. And these kids were real impressed with a lot of ooing and aahing until some little bastard who undoubtedly grew, grew up to be a tax collector or something said, what's the big deal? It's just a pencil. I could do that. And he puts a pencil down and smashes it. And my, my, my dreams of world domination collapsed. And I was, you know, downhill from there yep the kung, the, the kung Fu, that karate the chop. It wasn't a kung fu chop hadn't heard of kung fu until kung fu came up uh yeah how about this trick? I'm gonna make this pencil disappear it reminded me of that when I saw it, the Joker I thought that was yeah it's great all right I'm gonna I'm gonna bug out so I can do some more notes on uh, the Cold War here um, and uh, we're almost done with that series so these are the notes on episode 12 12 and 13. And I have heard that episode nine has dropped, uh, which was my favorite one. Um, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, my God, we're in trouble, but I couldn't be happier. That was the one that had the first whole part of it's about nuclear subs. And it was about the um, Corona satellite program. And then it was about uh, the A-12 SR-71. And then it was about Operation Azorian, which to me is the most amazing thing. And then the ending is just so melancholy when you get to what the Soviets did. We had... Had a chance that we lost this, what turned out to be the second greatest intelligence hall uh, during the Cold War, and we spent ten billion dollars on it. And then it turns out the Soviets got the biggest intelligence hall, a hall of the war, uh, and it cost about three hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's a good episode if you get a chance to see it. It's called uh, "Cloaks and Daggers." It's on Daily Wire, and uh, and it's something I'm real proud of. Okay, so that'll do it for this uh, somewhat truncated edition of uh, Stressful Lounge is Made Possible by the uh, members of BillLittle.com, And um, we will be back on Monday night, and I should have some things to actually show by Monday night, fingers crossed, knock wood, and um, and I should be done with these notes by next time, so we can go back to the three and a half hour uh, territory, so. So that'll do it. All right, so uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Uh, Thanks for the support. and, And we will see you, I guess, on Monday night.